please be seated. All right. Well, if you will, let's take out our Bibles to the book of Malachi. We're going to finish up this series called Love Does, where we're looking at the love of God recorded in the minor prophets. And so today we're going to be in the book of Malachi. As you turn there, uh, I found this app a few weeks ago, uh, a- application on my phone. It, it's, it's called Blinkist, Blink I-S-T, and uh, it's really been helpful to me, and so I'm just kind of recommending it, and it fits into the sermon. But um, what's, what's really cool about this app is that it takes like popular, best-selling, non-fiction titles and then um, records them with uh, just like a 15-minute summary Right, And so it's, it's basically all the big ideas of a book packed into 15 minutes, and you can listen to it. And it's been the best way for me to consume a book, because as a, as a dad, um, in the evening I usually have three options of what I can do with my free time, right? I, I can binge watch Netflix, I can read a book, or I can wrestle with a toddler on the floor. And uh, the toddler wins every time, right? Uh, not just because I'm a good dad, right, but because I've got to get my shots in right now while he's young, you know, because there's going to be a time when he, that's not going to happen anymore. But the reason why I tell you all this is that when I think of the book of Malachi, what I find out is that it's really a 15-minute summary of the whole Old Testament. You see, I'm not, I'm not telling you that you should just read the book of Malachi and not read the Old Testament, but what you see in the book of Malachi is all the primary themes in the Old Testament. It's, it's found right here. Actually, if you look at the key verse of Malachi, Malachi 3.7, we'll put this on the screen. The key verse of Malachi actually sums up the, mes- the message of the Old Testament almost completely. It says this, Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statues, you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Of hosts. That's, that's kind of the Old Testament boiled down into one statement right there. Not only that, but when you look at the book of Malachi, it's the last thing that God's people will hear for almost 400 years. Um, Israel is going to enter what theologians call the, the silent period or the silent years, and they receive no word from God until Jesus comes um, onto the scene. And so This is going to reverberate in their minds for the next 400 years, this book, this text. And so um, there's three movements in the text, and so we want to look at this together today. And here's the first thing that we see in, in the book of Malachi, and that's this. We have the charge against God's people. There's, there's four components to this charge, to what God is holding against them. And I want to give you the context of this. So uh, this is being written about 170 years since the Babylonian exile. So when the Israelites are taken off to Babylon, they're there for 70 years, right? God said it wouldn't be a permanent exile, uh, that they would come back. But for 70 years, they're in Babylon, right? A hundred years after they come back to the promised land, that's when Malachi writes this book. 
And when they first came back, they went through all this kind of national revival and all these kind of reforms that we're back in the temple and we've got the walls rebuilt. And, and you can read a lot of this in the book of Nehemiah. And just as a sidebar, um, the next series that we're going to be going through is the book of Nehemiah. So this will be a good kind of setup for that series. So they make all these kind of national reforms and revival has come around God's people as they settle back into the promised land. But yet, within a hundred years, those reforms begin to wear off. But what didn't wear off with God's people is their commitment to an external re- religiosity, right? They became a people who, who look really good on the outside, but inside their hearts are far from the Lord. Historians say that Israel would never again lose their external re- religiosity. Uh, They were so scarred by the exile and so scared that it would happen again that they become permanently, outwardly religious. This is the time period where groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees are are kind of formed, right? Uh, Those were the guys that had laws on top of laws on top of laws to make sure they never broke God's law. These are the same people that Jesus had the hardest time with. He would say to them things like, you guys are whitewashed tombs, right? You look great on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead man's bones. And so Malachi is going to speak to a group of people who outwardly appear very religious. But their hearts, their hearts are very far from him. And so here's the first charge that God has against his people. There's four components. um, And I just want to warn you as we go through this, okay? That Malachi... He gets all up in your business, right? Can I just say that real quick? I know that's a little urban or whatever, but y'all, y'all know what I'm saying? Like, he's reading your mail a little bit, right? He, he all up in your business. You're going to see. But the first thing he says is this. You are religious, but self-seeking. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. He says, and you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured lamb or diseased animals, lame or diseased animals, and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? You see, their worship had become half-hearted, and they were bringing animals that, that were diseased or lame. That, that It wasn't their best. I have a church planner friend who says that when he became a church planner, everybody started calling him and saying things like, um, Hey, I bought a new computer. Do you want my nine-year-old one that I have here at the house? Or uh, I just got an iPhone. Do you want my flip phone? You know, and uh, he said, I was, I was really grateful for their generosity. But he says, what does it say about us when we upgrade our houses and our lifestyles and then we give to the kingdom what has no value to us anymore? Right? That's what Israel's doing right now. They're offering to God what had little to no value to them. And they're offering that as an offering, as, as worship. Let me ask you, what does God get from you? Does he get your first and your best? Or does he get your leftovers? Does it cost you to give to the Lord? That's a tough question, right? Here's the second charge that he has. He says, you're religious, but you're self-centered. Look at chapter 2. Let me tell you, nothing reveals our self-centeredness quite like marriage, right? I mean, when God tells two fallen people 
love each other the way Christ loves, loves the church, like you're, good luck, right? That, that's not going to go well. You're going to learn a lot of stuff about yourself that you didn't know was there. And, and so that's what happens here. He's going to get all up in their business. Look at this, verse 13. He says, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. You see, they feel like there's something wrong with their relationship with God. They feel distant from him. And so they're asking, like, Lord, why are you, why are you so distant from us? What's going on? The Lord answers, it is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Now, now watch the repetition here with the word one. Watch this. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him, body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Let me give you some context what's going on here. If you were to go a couple verses back in chapter 2, you'd realize that the young men started marrying foreign women instead of the godly Hebrew women, right? And so when the younger men started doing that, some of the older men thought, well, I kind of like them foreign women too. I know the Lord said we're not supposed to do that, but, but, but I want to. And so they would divorce their wives and then go marry these other foreign women that they were forbidden, and they're taking a divorce to do it as well. And so God is going to confront them in two ways. And I want you to see what he says here. He says, first of all, your marriage was a covenant that you made before the Lord. And it's supposed to reflect his love to the world, right? That's, that's our marriage. Our marriage is a picture of God's love for us, right? You, you see that repetition over and over of the word one. Your covenant with your spouse is a picture of God's love. And God says, listen... My covenant with you, my love for you, I, I don't just drop you for other nations. No, I'm faithful to you. And regardless if, of, of your faithlessness, I will always be faithful to you, says the Lord. Right? But then here's the second thing he says about our marriages. That another intention of our marriage, another uh, thing that God has for us in marriage is that uh, he wants us to raise up godly children. Right? Now, you might look at your marriage right now and think, I thought it was all about me, right? I thought my marriage was about my wants, my desires, right? I thought it was Jerry Maguire. You complete me, right? Like that's what I thought it was supposed to be or the, the knight in shining armor or, or whatever, right? But let me tell you, our marriages are not about us. You see, right here in the text, Malachi says that the two primary reasons we get married is to show the world God's love and to raise godly children. But here's the thing. When a society becomes more and more self-centered, guess what starts to happen? You have a high divorce rate, and children begin to become a preference. Right? Now, I want to be really, 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 really careful here. Because I do not want to imply that the number of kids you have in any way 
is a measure of how godly you are, right? I mean, there can be multiple valid reasons why you would choose to have a small or a large family or why you would have no children at all, right? So don't hear me there. Here's the point I want to make right now is this. Even our marriages and our families are not about us. It's all about God. It's all about God. It's all for God. Because here's the, here's the mindset shift we got to have. God is not merely the author of our story. He is the main character of our story, right? And therefore, the way we live, we have to realize that we can't be man-centered. We can't be us-centered. I can't be Jake-centered. That my life has to be centered and rooted in God for his glory alone. So here's the third thing he says. Here's the third charge. He says, you're religious, but you're unbelieving. Look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And how have you wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. He is pleased with them. Or, where is God? Where is the God of justice? Then, then flip down to Malachi 3. Malachi 3, 13 and 15. He goes further on with this charge. He says, You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, What have we said against you? He says, You have said it's futile to serve God. What do you gain by carrying out his requirements and by going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But we call the arrogant blessed. Certain evildoers prosper even when they put God to the test and they get away with it. Here's the deal. Even though God had done so much for the Israelites, they're still saying, hey, God, you're not fair. What you're doing is not right. And here's the thing. God had already taken them out of two self-inflicted captivities, right? And in this moment, the Lord's thinking, what else do I have to do to show you that I love you? What, What else do I have to do for you to get this, that my love for you is unending? There's a theologian by the name of J.C. Ryle. J.C. says this, In light of the cross, the greatest insult you can give God is to doubt his love for you. Let me tell you, the cross is the universal sign that God loves you. I don't know what you're going through right now. Maybe you've gone through a hard year. Maybe you've had some things happen to you that you're just, you're just kind of broken about, right? Maybe your, your year's been awesome. I don't know. But here's the one thing I do know. No matter what your story is in this room, the cross is proof that God loves you. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? And so here's the thing. You might go through seasons when you have questions. You might go through seasons where you don't understand what God is doing. I get that. But there comes a time where God's going to say, what else do I have to do to prove my love for you? I rescued you from sin. I brought someone into your life to share the gospel with you. You remember that dark time you were going through? I brought you out of that. And let's look at every prayer I have answered for you over and over and over and over again. There, there, There comes a time when not trusting God becomes an insult to his character. Right? The final thing, final charge he has against them, and this is the hardest one. Remember, I said he gets all up in your business, right? So here we go. Is you're religious, but you're untrusting. 
untrusting primarily with money. Look at verse 8. He says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there will be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there won't be enough room to spare. Let me just make a few quick observations here so you see this. Number one, God doesn't need the tithe, right? He wants it because he wants us to trust him, right? The the Lord owns the whole storehouse. He doesn't need this, right? He wants it for our sake. I was watching David Jeremiah a couple weeks ago, and David Jeremiah was preaching uh, on tithing, and he said that, One time there was a young couple in his church just starting out who came to him and they said, hey, listen, we're we're uh, we're not tithing. We want to start. We're just really nervous about it. And uh, Dr. David Jeremiah said, here's the deal. Why don't you just write a check every week and give it to me? I'll hold it for you. Right. Every week you just write it uh, out to the church, but give it to me and I'll hold it for you. And then at the end of the month. If, if you run out of money, I'll, I'll give you the money back, and you can have it. So the husband spoke with the wife. They talked it out, and they're like, you know what? That, that seems like a great idea. Yeah, let, we'll do that. Sure. And Dr. Jeremiah said, listen, I'm your pastor. I want you to trust me. But do you realize you're trusting a fallen human being more than you are trusting God? And I watched that, and I was like, oh, Jeremiah, why'd you have to do that to me, you know? But that's, that's the thing. That's what he's saying here. Let me make one more observation here and tell you this. Everybody tithes to something, right? We all worship something. We all give our first and our best to something. The question is, is, is the something you're giving to, is it worthy? Um, so God just laid out right there in Malachi four ways that we sometimes can be outwardly religious, but our hearts can be far from him. So here's the second movement in the text. The second movement is this. We see the problem of persistent unfaithfulness. Um, so what do the Israelites need to do? They've already had this national revival. They've had all these reforms. Do, do they need more repentance, another revival service? Maybe this time they should pinky promise with God. If they pinky promise, I think they'll stick to the plan this time, right? What do they need to do? Well, you see, when the Israelites rebuilt the wall, they made these commitments to the Lord. I'm going to put them on the, on the screen for you. They said, we'll give God our first and our best. Uh, we will put his temple first, primarily with the tithe. And then he says this, we'll honor God with our marriages. We're not going to intermarry with unbelievers. Yet, you look at these four charges, they've broken every one of those commitments that they made in Nehemiah. This is just a hundred years after they made those commitments. Now you'd say, a hundred years, Jake, that's a pretty long time. But think about this for a second. A hundred years from now, what generation will be on earth? Some of your children and your grandchildren. How far do you want your discipleship to go in your family? Do you want it just to end with you? Or are you going to pass the gospel down from generation to generation to generation? 
not only was it 100 years later that Malachi's writing this, but Nehemiah talks about it in the last chapter of his book. In Nehemiah 13.25, I want to show you this because I think it's becoming my new favorite verse in the Old Testament. Nehemiah says about their commitments they made, he says this, And I confronted them and cursed them, and I beat up some of the men, and I pulled out their hair. Be glad that Nehemiah is not your pastor, amen? Like, I'm a little mad at my seminary for not teaching the UFC pastoral care class, you know? Like, I'll, I'll take that one. But let me ask you do, you, do you ever feel like the Israelites? You're just stuck in a cycle where you're making commitments to the Lord and you fail. Commitments fail. Commitment fail. That cycle going on over and over and over again. Malachi ends the Old Testament with the word curse, which can be translated as destruction. And what's so sad about that is that the Old Testament began with God speaking life into everything, right? It was form and dark with, you know, void and boom, all this life. And there's so much potential and everything's beautiful and great. And here we come to the end of the Old Testament. And what do we have? Curse. And here's the thing. God would have been completely justified to just stamp the end on the book. But he doesn't. I want you to see the last part of this book, the last movement. The last movement is this. We see God's solution. God's solution is the son of righteousness. Look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Nehemiah says this. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. That's a picture of hell. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be like stubble. And the day that coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. That's, that's kind of what we expect right now, right now, right? He's describing hellfire, brimstone, judgment. We kind of expect that, right? God's going to pay us for what we deserve. But then look at verse 2. Oh, I'm so grateful for verse 2. Look what he says. But for you who revere my name... The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like a well-fed calf, right? Now, I don't know much about well-fed calves, right? But when I picture them frolicking, that just looks happy to me, you know? Like, yeah, I want that. You're welcome. That's free. I, I don't know why I went in the notes. I just wanted to give it to you. But here's what he says. Malachi says that when the Messiah comes... He is the son, S-U-N, of righteousness. And when he shines his healing rays, he's going to do one of two things to sin, right? He's either going to destroy it or he's going to purify you through it, right? He's going to purify you through the rays, right? And so here's the best part. You get to choose whether you want to be destroyed or healed, right? You get two options in life. There's two ways you can live. You can either repent, which says, God, I hate my sin. I want to be separated from it. I don't want this anymore. Take it away from me. You can be separated from it, or you can rebel. And when you rebel, what you say to God is, God, I love this more than I love you, and I don't want to let it go yet. You just hold on to it. But here's the deal. When the sun of righteousness comes, it's going to destroy sin. And when it destroys sin, either you'll be separated from it and you'll be saved, 
or you'll be holding on to it and you'll be destroyed when it's destroyed. The beautiful thing is you get to choose which option you would like. The text says that the son of righteousness will bring healing. God's love heals, but it heals in a way you wouldn't expect. It heals like a refining fire. A refinement, what they do is they boil the metal and all the impurity comes out of it, right? And then they pull that away and it's a pure metal because of that. That's what God does through our lives, through trials. But sometimes in life you go through stuff, right? And what that does is it just forces you to depend on the Lord. And in that moment, he's boiling away all your false confidence and all your false gods that you worship, right? And he refines you. He heals you so that you cling to him and him alone. So as we wrap up, love does. I've just got to ask, where are you in this process? You look right here. God is a God who is reaching out to his people again and again and again. And he is a God who disciplines his people because he knows what's best for them. And he's a God who heals his people. And he heals them by taking them through hard times. Let me ask you, where are you at in that process? Is God reaching out to you? Is he disciplining you to try to wake you up? Or is he taking you through something in order to teach you to depend on him? Wherever he is, I want you to just submit yourself to the love of God and allow him to take you through the process that he has for you. Let's pray together. Father, as we have looked at your word, God, I know that you are always reaching. God, you are always pointing us back. And God, ultimately, you want to heal. You want to heal us from our brokenness and our sin. Father, as I look at this room right now, Lord, I know there's people here you're reaching out to. God, would they just turn to you and surrender all to you right now? Lord, I know there's people in this room right now you're trying to wake up. God, would they wake up? Realize you're better than anything this world has to offer. Lord, I know there's people right now, they're going through things and they're not sure what you're up to. God, would you let them see that you're healing them by forcing them to depend on you with all they have. Father, may you have your way in us. May we respond to your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I just give you the invitation.